2: We didn't cause the great emergence. It's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. It just happened. And we can't stop it. We are not asked to like it. Or approve of it. Or think it's right or wrong or make any other judgment. It is.
3: That voice, familiar to many of you, is the voice of Phyllis Tickle of Blessed Memory. And this episode of Emerged is devoted entirely to her. Before her death in 2015 at the age of 81, Phyllis lived many lives, the last of which was as the godmother of the emerging church movement. She was a prophet, a guru, but most importantly, she was a dear, dear friend to many of us. In this episode, we're going to explore the legacy of Phyllis Tickle. In many ways, she was the unlikeliest ally and advocate of the emerging church, and yet... She, an Anglican laywoman in her late 60s, found a home among a bunch of disgruntled Gen X evangelical pastors. And the admiration was mutual. If you knew Phyllis, what follows will probably tug at your heartstrings and remind you of her awesomeness. And if you didn't, well, we hope this will give you a little taste of how awesome she was. Now I want you to come with me to a room. It's the loft, the youth loft in a church next to Fuller Seminary. It's a night in early 2014 on Phyllis's final book tour. I was accompanying her on that book tour. And she had given a talk at Fuller. And then the whole crowd had adjourned across the street to the youth loft of the church where we were going to record a live episode of Homebrewed christianity with phyllis and barry taylor and before we started we had a toast in phyllis's honor of a beer that trip brewed specifically for her called a 500 year rummage ale and this is my toast on that night to phyllis Alright, let's, um, let's raise our glasses May the legacy of the work of Phyllis Tickle Like a shot of Jack Daniels Burn a little bit going down But warm you in the middle Here's to Phyllis Here, here How gorgeous
4: How gorgeous To Phyllis
2: It's a beautiful beer. It's a beautiful bear. But every 500 years, the Latinized culture goes through a, a huge upheaval, and we're going through one right now. Every time that happens, whatever form of Christianity has to drop back and reconfigure it, doesn't ever cease to be.
1: They had a deep suspicion of hierarchy and institutionalism.
5: If fear is the motivation behind not dealing with those sort of of in-the-back-of-your-mind questions, that to me is the worst kind of faith of all. It's it's despair.
0: Welcome to Emerged, a story of young leaders who had audacious dreams, who became loyal friends, who achieved fame and influence, who burned brightly, but briefly. And now for the first time, many of the leaders reflect on their participation in the emerging church movement, and they consider the movement's legacy. Join us as we tell the tale of their successes and failures, the attacks they endured, the mistakes they made, what they left undone, and what they accomplished. Join us to hear the story of what emerged. And now here are your hosts, Tony Jones and Trip Fuller with producer Josh Gilbert.
2: All
3: right, you guys, I want to start the Phyllis Phenomenon episode by throwing a little bit of a curveball because we had talked about in this intro trip, you and I would each talk about the first time we met Phyllis, but I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about another time because I want you to imagine the Cornerstone Music Festival in 2009. Cornerstone was a music festival that was started and run by the Jesus People, the Japuza, Jesus People USA. It was like a hippie fest, Christian music jam. Big bands came through. It was in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. We
1: floated a pinata, and we told you not to break it open,
6: and it had some uh, it had some pork and beans in it, I guess. Only two of them
7: have
3: pork and beans in them. <laughs> the
7: rest of them have candy. The rest have candy. You made the call. This is your you call.
3: call. You made it was mainly for music, but there were always speakers tents, okay, as well, on the on the side. For whatever reason, the guy from the Jesus People USA who was hiring the speakers in 2009 must have been super into emergent because he invited like me, Jay Baker, Richard Twist, Andrew Marin, and Phyllis Tickle. This is the crazy thing, you guys. She's 75 years old, and she and I are basically preaching in a tent at a Jesus People music festival (laughs) over the 4th of July, trying to convince these people about the great emergence. And Phyllis was out there in, you know, in culottes, which are these like kind of old lady pants. Like she was wearing like like a polyester suit and these old lady pants that go like halfway down your shins. And holy smokes, she was on fire. about her book and about the great emergence and every the trends she was seeing. And she, the, my point in that is, yes, I preached and spoke alongside of her at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. and in a tent in a cornfield at the Cornerstone Music Festival in 2009.
7: You know, one of the things about this episode is just this kind of shift to focusing on moments in the emerging church movement. This is the only episode about a person, and there's a reason for it. Phyllis Tickle uh, not only introduced the emerging church movement to a broader audience, she also told so many of us that we're a part of something bigger than we ever anticipated and one of the tasks of this episode is really to honor all of the people who have her tied up in their story and then hopefully capture enough of it that those of you who never met Phyllis know why we can't tell our story without her
6: in looking at a lot of these interviews you know I encourage people to look at videos because you catch something that you might not hear in the audio but The way that Phyllis, I I can't help but notice this, the way that she looked at people, at every person, whether it was at a book signing or on an interview or talking with one of you, there was this like electricity in her eyes, this way that she's really looking at you. And although she has so much to say and there's so much happening and she's you know traveling and touring and all these things, she really seemed to hold the moment with the people that she was speaking with. And of course, I never got to meet her but I'm curious what it was like to be in the room with her and to be involved in such a robust theological discussion while someone's really looking at you and, and seeing you for your humanity. I've been around a few people like that. And it seems like Phyllis had that electricity in her eyes.
3: Josh, I mean, it's fascinating that you, see that having not met her, but just like going through interview footage with her and stuff. Um, That's exactly right. You know, a lot of times you meet kind of Christian celebrity and any kind of celebrity type figure who's written books and speaks in front of large audiences. And you kind of feel like they're looking over your shoulder, you know, to see who else might be in the room that they could connect with. Not Phyllis, man. She was locked in. You're exactly right. You were the only person in the world for her. She was not distracted. She was intensely focused on her conversation partner, whoever that may be. Uh, And that, you know, that's one of the things that was just so incredibly endearing and lovely about her. Nobody knew that better than John Sweeney, who was her authorized biographer. He had worked with her in a publishing function earlier in their careers, and then they become very close friends. And Phyllis asked John to write her biography. And so he spent, at the end of her life, he spent a great deal of time with her. He had access to all of her papers and and ended up writing her biography, which is a a worthwhile read for anybody who wants to know more about, about Phyllis, as is her own memoir, The Shaping of a Life. So I asked John when I interviewed him to just kind of put in context who was Phyllis before she crossed paths with those of us in the emerging church movement.
8: Well, Phyllis was... You know, she was a scholar and a book publisher and a writer, a published poet, an essayist, highly regarded, particularly in the American South, for decades before she started her work at Publishers Weekly. Her work at Publishers Weekly was almost the work of her retirement. You know, she had been the founder of a publishing house with her husband and ran it successfully, published People like um, Johnny Cash. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire. The ring of fire. Anyway, she founded a press called St. Luke's Press. And it was quite successful. They had some regional bestsellers. And that was purchased by a larger press at the time called Peachtree, which was in Atlanta. So again, this was all in the American South. That's where Phyllis's reputation was made. And she was a regional writer. The best way that people might think of her today is, you know, I mean, she wasn't as big, of course, as a Wendell Berry kind of a figure, but she was that kind of a figure. She was a a southern poet and essayist and had that reputation for sort of rural life and reflection. Mrs. Tickle and her husband of 42 years, Sam,
3: a doctor, live in the country near Memphis they moved out of the city
2: out here we're not the measure of anything we're never gonna win out here do you know what i mean the whole enlightenment and western civilization in the last three hundred years has been built on the notion that man is the measure of all things That's bull. man's the measure of absolutely nothing but you forget that when you're in the city and everything is scaled to man everything i touch here is alive out here nothing is an object you are caught In majesty that doesn't require anything of you except just the sense of, yeah, it's here. And God bless me for the time I'm part of it. How wonderful to be part of it.
8: So when she retired from publishing, she had no plans to become a journalist covering publishing, when Daisy Marlis at Publishers Weekly asked her to do that, it was really uh, a, a almost a retirement kind of career. Now, I haven't done the math, but Phyllis was born in 1934, and she began that work at Publishers Weekly in 1992. So, you can do the math, but she was recruited to be the founding religion editor there, and her job was A very cool job because it was right, you know, the 90s, for those of us who were there, the 90s was the decade that saw the boom of religion publishing, religion and spirituality publishing, unlike had been seen before. And Phyllis was in the middle of it and the champion of it and the cheerleader of it. You know, she started that in 92 and she was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen because, She she wanted to be in the middle of the conversations. So when a pastor says to me,
2: "What should I do about not losing my own people?" I want to say, "Sweetheart, as long you know, love them. Uh, They're going to go with you. They have the flexibility." When we were saying a a minute ago that uh, when I go into a cohort meeting, uh, a third of the people there are as white-haired as I am. and, and part of it is uh, the, the desire to get back to the young people. You know, you know, the old Carol Burnett joke, which I love to tell all the time, that kids and their grandparents get along so well because they have a common enemy. Uh, and, and, and it's true. It's the best joke she ever made. Uh, and, and that group in there is going to love traditional or inherited church until they die.
8: She was brilliant. She was gorgeous. I know that I say this in the biography and I remember thinking I was probably being controversial uh, by talking about how gorgeous she was. But if you were there in the early 90s, she was gorgeous. I mean, she was 60 years old. She was like six feet tall. She was beautiful. She was handsome. She was brilliant. She was, you know, she was the smartest, best looking person in the room. And it really was kind of incredible. That's
2: the emergence because what's happening is this thing is emerging out of the center. What it is doing is denying all of the doctrinal specificities that are denominationalism. And it is instead saying Jesus Christ is the center. And that's the part of this we've got to celebrate. I don't care where we come from. That's where, and, and it's beginning to ask the question, where is the passion, where is the belief? Where is the discipline that allowed men and women to be burned, that allowed them to be thrown to the lions? Where are the things that mattered? Give us back that part of the tradition.
8: So not only was she contributing to every conversation uh, as a participant, but she was covering it as a journalist. And then, because she had all those remarkable qualities, she was then on you know national media all the time, championing the category, championing the growth of spirituality and religion publishing and spirituality and religion generally in American life in the 90s.
2: And so what we've got is the great transformation and then 500 years later the great unnamed which we call the age of Gregory the Great and then the great schism and then the great reformation and now we have the great emergence. So when we speak of the Great Emergence, we really are talking about a cultural upheaval. In the same way that when we speak of the Great Reformation, we're speaking about a cultural upheaval. The Great Reformation gave us Protestantism. It also gave us confessing and professing uh, forms of Christianity. But it gave us a form of faith different from the name of the thing that was happening down here out of which it came.
8: She was always wanting to put her finger on the pulse. I think she knew about disaffected Christians, and I think she had probably interviewed every you know major uh, Christian thinker-writer of the decade before you met her in 2003. So I think she just saw what people like Brian were doing and knew that they were tracking... Uh, something and profits of something that needed to be paid close attention to. I certainly heard her say something like that frequently about Brian in particular. I mean, I almost found it a little bit embarrassing. I'm guessing Brian might have found it a little bit embarrassing going back to Phyllis's enthusiasm and cheerleading. I mean, you know, she again and again referred to him as Martin Luther. And, you know, that was always her sort of over-the-top approach, but... I mean, I think she believed these things that she said. I think she just, she got so involved with Two Feet In, somehow maintaining a journalistic perspective, but yet when it came to Emergent, she was, she was really all in. She had been trying to retire for a couple of years, So, you know, she was kind of on the way out when you uh, started to see her a lot. And then she retires in 2004. She gets an honorary doctorate from Yale Divinity School. You know, she's kind of flying high in the religion world. And she then, you know, hits the road with The Great Emergence soon thereafter. You know, book publishes in 2008, and as you said, it was quite successful.
2: Hi there, how are you?
8: Phyllis Tickle lives intensely
1: Marvelous.
2: Okay, give me his name.
8: Signing copies of her latest book at a bookseller's show.
2: Want to swap with me? All right. All right.
8: Working the floor, talking to publishers' representatives, getting the story of what's new in religion books. She hit the lecture circuit, and she she not only trumpeted her book, The Great Emergence, but she was trumpeting, you know, emergent and emergence and the great emergence uh, all the way along there for years. She was so conversationally lively and quick and smart that in Q&A, if anybody would challenge that, she had such rhetorical flourish, you know, that you would come away thinking she's probably right. Uh, Even even, even though, even though it seems a little fuzzy, uh, she's probably right.
2: You know, there's one other thing that bothers me about this kind of conversation is that there's a sense of despair. Now, I don't work for the church or a church, so I can afford to, you know, right? I mean, i got no pension riding on this thing, um, which does give a certain impunity, but there's a sense of despair that is almost defeating uh, somehow, that we've got to jump, that 500 years ago, if Roman Catholics had been as neurotic about figures as we are, they would have shot the Pope, burned the Vatican, and moved to China, because there was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics, right? There's nothing to make, but there wasn't. I mean, that's the only building material you've got. Uh, and, and for us, there's nothing to make new Christians out of except Protestants and Roman Catholics and a and few Anglicans.
8: She was convincing, and she was, uh, you, you know, it's kind of like her, it's kind of like that story that she also o- always told, and I don't know if it was original to her that, you know, because it's beautiful, it's true.
2: You will remember back in the early 90s, if you believed in the historicity of the virgin birth, you were a Christian. If you didn't, you probably were a progressive or an atheist or something, you know. So I was there to talk about the virgin birth. But it was a, a supper meeting, and the young people were serving the dinner. Uh, and uh, when the dinner was over, I stood up to talk, and they, of course, all went back to start scraping the dishes. And there was this kid, 16, I would bet, maybe 17, and he was scraping away. And the longer I talked, the less he scraped. And finally, he just gave the whole thing up and went and sat down in the back of the auditorium in the last row of seat and just listened. When it was all over and the adults had all gone, the kid is still sitting back there. And I go back and I said, "Uh, how are you? He said, I'm fine. I said, may I help you? And, and he said, well, I've got a question. And my immediate reaction is, dear God, his mother's going to call me because I have committed heresy and ruined her son. Uh, and, and I said with great trepidation, what is your question? And he said, well, it's I don't understand about them. And he pointed to the empty uh, chairs where the adults had been. I said, why don't you understand about them? And he said, I don't understand about them and the virgin birth thing. And I said, what? And he said, direct quote. It's so absolutely beautiful, it has to be true, whether it happened or not. That's an emergence answer. That's as near a definition as you're gonna get. That's what they mean by actual instead of factual.
8: I think the every 500 year cycle thing is also too compelling not to be true. Let's just leave it there.
2: One of the strange things uh, about the Reformation was up until the time of the reformation in both Judaism and Christianity and to this to this day still in Islam there was a continuity or a wholeness you didn't have a political self and a religious self and a domestic self and a process a professional self you were a unit uh, of one thing. And when the Reformation comes along, in order to establish the uh, separation of church and state, it has to shred or departmentalize, or whatever you want to call it, the individual into the citizen, the believer, the husband or wife, uh, and the, the worker.
8: I think a lot of it had to do with her role in the main line, her role as an Episcopalian and so the fact that this uh, pillar of Episcopal Church USA, who had put together the divine hours, the fact that she was putting her stamp of approval on this and saying how essential it was to transform every established denomination and not just simply evangelical churches, I think was powerful for people who were more at the center of the movement. I think it, my impression was that it expanded what Emergent was doing into all of those, those hyphenated versions. And and again, I would never, I, I'm sorry that I keep saying things that sound like I'm in marketing in a publishing house, but that's kind of my background. I would never cynically suggest that she had a, had a reason for that, but that's also part of then why The Divine Hours was so incredibly successful, I think, because all of these folks with evangelical backgrounds started then latching on to ancient traditions, not only because they were being rediscovered in emergence, but because Phyllis was attached to them and Phyllis was trumpeting them. I think that was a lot of her appeal. And I think also, you know, her age and her stature was part of her appeal. The fact that she was not trying to be cool made her wicked cool. You know, the fact that she wasn't wearing blue jeans, she was wearing skirts, and she was in her 60s, and she looked like a retired grandmother, but yet she could talk with anybody— and be honest and straightforward and super smart, I think made her, uh, her authenticity felt genuine. And it was genuine. I wrote her biography really because I loved her and wanted to spend more time with her.
2: You need some kind of anchor, or maybe I did, that keeps you focused on God. But there's something far more subtle and gripping about that. It gives up ownership of self, and it's when that ownership is given up that freedom comes.
7: When we come back, we're going to be joined by Brian McLaren, Nadia Boltz-Weber, and Diana Butler-Bass as we hear some very personal and intimate stories about Phyllis Tickle. And if you don't want to have these interruptions, consider joining the Emerged community at EmergePodcast.com. If I could only be
5: sure Perhaps I could lead the way. But here we are again.
7: Hey, friends, if you, if you want to hang out with us. consider coming to Theology Beer Camp this October in Denver, Colorado. You'll not just get to hang out with us. There'll be 20 or so different podcasts. There'll be 20 or so different scholars, theologians, biblical scholars, and such, and there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people who like asking big questions and aren't sure where, how together to do it. If you want to be a part of that, come taste the fun and delicious craft beverages. Come to camp, theologybeer.camp. Check it out, and we'll see you there.
5: In The
0: God of Wild Places, Tony Jones opens up for the first time about what pushed him out of the church and into the woods. And he explores the spiritual insights he's gained in Wild Places, about place and peace, about risk and failure, about
5: predators and death. Brian McLaren says, I love this book. I love its honesty, its tenderness, its craft, its settings, its quests and
0: questions, and the profound mysteries toward which it bows it takes you
5: places you need to go. The God of Wild Places by Tony Jones is available wherever books are sold.
7: Tony, one of the things that Phyllis did for members of the Great Emergence, but also Uh, people that had some inkling that something new's afoot, those in institutions that knew change was required but didn't know where to go, who to trust, what to do, how to try, as she handed church history in a telling where all the uncomfortabilities, confusion, and struggles are actually a part of that moment. And I think somehow her invitation in retelling the history and giving us this this great emergence, the five hundred year rummage sale allowed a growing number of people to see themselves and their their the, the wrestling, their change, their their distrust of institutions, the the desire for something new is actually part of what the spirit was up to, rather than energy or angst throwing them out of it.
3: She didn't even come up with the five hundred year rummage sale herself. She. She took that from an Episcopal bishop named Mark Dyer, who probably said it in like an offhanded way. Every 500 years or so, the church has a rummage sale where they drag everything out of the attic and the basement and put it on the front yard and decide, what are we going to keep and what are we going to throw away? And she turned that kind of into a cottage industry, that, that metaphor. I think you're exactly right. You know, when you hear her talk about it, and i heard her talk about it many times i mean we we spoke as i've already said uh you know we we were on stage and on uh, on intense <laughs> together talking about it many many times over about a decade she just said this is inevitable this is part of the change in western civilization it's not just the church everything is changing and it feels like the rug is being pulled out from under us but it's a, it's a natural Time, So, you know, I think for so many people to have this woman in her mid 70s who was so established and so well respected say it seems super scary that your grandkids aren't going to church or don't fit into the type of church that you love so much. It's going to be okay. You know, it, it, they had this old grandma telling them it's going to be okay. This is just how it goes. And I think that that put a lot of people at ease.
7: We weren't the only ones to be moved to new ideas, found ourselves tied up in the story of the church anew and and, and, and really leaning in to new possibilities from Phyllis's picture of the great emergence. Everyone talked to us about it. Up first is Nadia Boltz Weber, an ordained Lutheran pastor, founder of one of these emergent hybrid churches, the House of All Sinners, and a three-time New York Times bestselling author. What is it that Nadia knows Phyllis for right off the front? Well, you guessed it. It's a rummage sale.
5: You know, it's funny because somebody can have an entire body of work over a number of years, and sometimes one thing that they said, one point that they made is what they're known for. That's the thing that resonates, right? And for her, it was that, you know, that rummage sale. Every 500 years, the church has a rummage sale.
2: To understand what's happening in the church, you have to understand that about every 500 years, we feel compelled to have a giant rummage sale, and we're having one. The uh, the rummage sale is the 300-pound uh, gorilla in the living room. Now, whether you call it a rummage sale or give it a more um, elaborate or academic name, the truth still is that about every 500 years, that part of the world that is Latinized, uh, that is, that received its Christianity through the Latin language or that received it uh, from those who had received it from the Latin language or who had been colonized by those who had received it from those who had received it. However you extend it, Latinized Christianity, the area in which Latinized Christianity holds influence, for some reason, every 500 years goes through a huge upheaval. Um, And that upheaval is across every part of life. It's not just the church itself. It's everything in the culture that goes whoopee and then comes back down, that goes through a, a rummage sale which is to say that if you go back 500 years from where we are right now, you hit the Great Reformation. And if you go back 500 years from that, you hit the Great Schism in 1054. 500 years before that, you hit the Great Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And if you go back 500 years before that, you hit, whoops, Uh, the great transformation, uh, the change of the era. So we do this thing. Now, why we do it, uh, nobody really seems to know. It just is consistent. If we had a good rabbi here amongst us today, uh, we would also note that it's a Judeo-Christian phenomenon. That is to say, if you go back 500 years from the great transformation, you hit the Babylonian captivity and the end of First Temple Judaism, the coming of second. And 500 years before that, you hit the end of the Age of Judges and the coming of the Davidic dynasty out of which Messiah was to come. So for some reason, whether it's inherent in our culture, inherent in our language, inherent in our faith, who knows, we do this thing. We are doing it again. And when we become unsettled about what's happening to the institutional church, when we become unsettled about what's happening to some of our uh, young people and some of our older folk uh, also, we are consoled, I think, uh, if we take the long lens of history. And that's what I hope we do here uh, in our time together is look at the long lens of history. Yes, there's some frightening things that happened. You better believe there are because each time we go through one of these things, everything changes. The one we're going through right now is called the Great Emergence, but the one we are most familiar with historically is the Great Reformation because we were taught that in high school and, and in college. And if you remember, the Great Reformation was taught to you in terms of it was the rise of the nation state, it was the coming of the middle class, It was the birth of capitalism, and oh, by the way, it gave us Protestantism, which is pretty much how secular schools teach uh, what was happening, for very good reason. Everything changed, and uh, whatever form of religion holds hegemony, when we go through one of these things, uh, has to drop back and reconfigure. I think it's terribly important that as we look at what we're going through right now, we understand that whatever held hegemony, whatever form of religion ...of the faith uh, was important, had had power of place, pride of place, Uh, never ceases to be. It does not cease to be. The institutional church is not going to cease to be. Protestantism isn't going to cease to be. Anglicanism isn't going to cease to be. Roman Catholicism isn't going to cease to be. Uh, Orthodoxy isn't going to cease to be. We're all going to have to reconfigure to make room for this thing, which is called emergence Christianity.
7: The first time Phyllis was on Homebrewed Christianity was in 2008, and she raised a question that I, I guess I just completely missed over. What if we haven't really pulled everything out of the attic yet? It is a nugget that's got me thinking. Not only is the
4: sale thing kind of fun uh, and, and quirky, but it also sustains itself as a metaphor to the extent that in order to have one, you have to go through the whole attic and all the closets, which is what you were saying, and then go and lay it all out on the table and figure out, what you want to get rid of, and what you want to keep. And very often what you keep goes from the closet or the attic into the sitting room or the den or the family room or the dining room to take a a place of real um, pride, if you will, of real prominence. Uh, And that's the other part I like about the running sale uh, metaphor is that thing you were saying. There are things here that we have lost uh, that we need to reclaim. Uh, The words of Jesus, I think, being part of it.
7: Going through the attic laying everything out on the table, man, I had no idea just what was entailed in that invitation when Phyllis told it to me a while ago. And I'm not the only one still wrestling with this challenge.
5: Now, all these years later, I'm like, are we still in the rummage sale? Like, are did we stop the rummage sale? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know where we're at. I wish, I mean, that's why I wish Phyllis and Rachel were still here, because they were such better readers of culture than I am. That's not my gift. I don't, I can't figure that stuff out. They were great at it.
6: In looking through these interviews, it's clear that Phyllis played a personal motherly role in so many people's lives. And that's, that's beautiful on its own, but to, to marry that with someone who was also adding to the dialogue, to the theology at the time, someone who was bringing so much energy and just intellectually going to those places. What was it like to have someone in the room who could go to those places, but also with this personal kind of like motherly role attached to it?
3: I have a very vivid memory of the first time I really sat down with Phyllis one-on-one. I think it was in 2005 and I was feeling overwhelmed by life and all the kind of professional opportunities that were coming my way and, and didn't really have anybody, you know, a lot of people would be like, Phyllis is like the mom I never had because a lot of us who go into the church world, I think a lot of our families, maybe if we didn't come from a Family with pastors and stuff. They didn't really understand what we did, and what was so great about Phyllis was having somebody in that motherly role who really understood church life. And for me, she understood the publishing world. She helped me navigate the publishing world, and and uh, you know, in preparation for this episode, you guys, I went back and read the obituary that I wrote for Phyllis on BeliefNet uh, for that website, and it reminded me she was there with me on really like arguably the worst night of my life in 2008. And she stayed up with me and was by my side. So yeah, I mean, in, in both professional ways and personal ways, she was that to me for sure.
7: The first time I met her was like the first emerging church event where I got asked to speak for 10 minutes. And um, in lieu of an hour, I fit an hour of material in 10 minutes at uh, energetic, sporadic space, cramming ideas in. And it was at an Episcopal retreat center in North Carolina. And all the emerging church cohorts of North Carolina members that came there were all around the campfire that night. And Phyllis came over and sat down next to me. And Alicia was pregnant with our first kid then and was ta- had been talking to Alicia about becoming a parent And then she sees me and goes, hold on, I have a few questions for Trip. And she's like, Trip, come here. And, And she goes, I have three questions for you. And they're actually clarifying ones because it appears that you are giving me a summary of your future dissertation in 10 minutes. And I kind of followed it, but I'm not sure everyone else did. And I was like, well i only had 10 minutes and she goes okay first question right and they were sort of like nerdy questions which i proceed to give long answers she would ask follow ups okay second okay third and i get done and she goes so the first 30 seconds of your 10 minutes is worth that 10 minutes you don't have to say everything every time and i'm going to be watching you cuz i expect better right and And I think, oh, this is nice. She paid attention. And honestly, anyone that's going to ask me about the ontological priority of the future is just like pretty, you know, that gets me excited. Two weeks later, uh, I get an email from her with comments on the podcast episode that came out and said, with love, PT. And that kind of thing happened over time. And because she was so warm and encouraging, she had permission to say like critical guiding wisdom that from almost anyone else, I would have been like, I've never met you before, but there was no question. She genuinely cared, was interested and loved you. And like, she's really good at editing and spotting good ideas. And she understood what I wanted to communicate. And I just learned so much, but it came with that love. And I think it's easy to see in these conversations and even ones that aren't in this episode that she had the gift to do that for plenty of people.
6: Wasn't there a moment trip where she kind of invited you to not pretend like you're asking a question (laughs) by talking for five minutes, but that you just have the authority to say what you actually think? It doesn't have to be a question in disguise.
7: Yeah, because I started the podcast in a divinity school and then kept doing it right through PhD and postdoc and teaching and everything. At some point she emailed me and said, uh, I like the episodes where you talk half the time. I just get confused that your you know your your brilliant contributions to the to the conversation come in the guise of a question. At some point, you'll be able to trust your own encounter with God and using the gift of reason and creative thinking um that she's giving you and speak just for yourself and 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 like I remember that because it one meant she listened long enough and cared, but then said, no, like you have something, and you need to trust what God's doing in you, and that kind of that kind of encouragement uh, is 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 what gets a whole lot of people past in, you know imposter syndrome. Phyllis wasn't just a brilliant synthesizer and big picture painter that animated thousands of people. She was also an intimate friend, one that became a chosen mother for many members of the emerging church community.
5: I don't even know how you explain her. She was like the fairy godmother of everything. I I don't understand how you even begin because she did not make sense. Like if you go, oh, well, she's this woman who lives in like a rural area of Tennessee and has like how many children? Six? Something like that. (laughs) Like six kids, lives in rural Tennessee, is smart as under is an Episcopal laywoman and an academic, but started the religion desk at Publishers Weekly and sort of advocated for religious publishing to be not just sequestered in its own little denominations, but be more publicly available. And she could read culture. She could read the church and read culture like no one's business. I could listen to her talk all day long. She was so... Smart and astute, what a beautiful observer and commenter and supporter. She always answered the phone when I called, always. To lose both of them within a few years was brutal.
7: Think of the emerging church movement, people like Nadia or Brian McLaren or Phyllis come to mind. But Nadia is not the only one whose friendship with Phyllis uh, became a deep parental kind of love and support.
1: Well, first, I should say that Phyllis became a dear friend. I can't re- remember how old she was, and that might not have been something she talked about, but you know, she was enough older than me that I just considered her a kind of older sister and mentor friend and i remember the first time we met she when we met in person i think we maybe had some phone conversation or or something but i remember when we met in person she hugged me or something and then she said a man is known by the enemies he keeps and based on your enemies you must be a fine man or something like that you know and uh So she became such a a dear friend and Phyllis, I imagine everybody or just about everybody felt this way around her, but unlike a lot of religious people, I felt I entered into her presence with a hermeneutic of trust rather than suspicion, uh, or maybe a hermeneutic of generosity. Like I'm not out to find out where we disagree, I'm out to find out where, where we're working in a a healthy direction together so she was phenomenal and of course she had this sort of wide-ranging network of people who respected her greatly and so by her speaking positively about us it woke up a lot of other people to our our existence
7: next we're gonna hear a story From Diana Butler Bass, American church historian, prolific public scholar of religion, and, as we'll hear, someone who found their voice was encouraged to develop their platform and trust their own intuitions about the changing nature of religion because of Mama Phyllis.
0: I met Phyllis long before I ever heard of anything about Emergent. The first time we met was just by... Paper, I was writing a column that was carried uh, nationwide by the New York Times wire service. And so my column was on religion and culture. I can remember at some point along the way. Phyllis Tickle, who was the editor of the religion section of Publishers Weekly at that point, uh, reached out to me. She just wanted to introduce herself uh, to me. You know, Phyllis paid attention to everything in religion. And the fact that there was this 30-something-year-old woman out in California writing this column that had been picked up by the New York Times Wire Service uh, was not something that was going to escape her view. We knew each other's work. I read her early books. She knew all my early stuff. And then I wound up moving uh, to teach at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And Phyllis uh, lived in Memphis. And as it happened, she was also an Episcopalian. I got invited to a dinner party. She was invited to that same dinner party. And the host set us together at the table. We were sitting um, next to one another. And I think that for the whole dinner, we never spoke to anybody else. we just talk like this and um wow I felt like at that moment uh, when I first when I when I first met her I was actually not only writing but I had just become um a mother and um So I was, new marriage, new baby, new job, (laughs) and uh, trying to write books and trying to get this sort of whole career of mine, vocation lifted off of the ground after having had it all destroyed by the evangelical college. And so Phyllis was just like there as a friend, as a mentor, and she became a kind of a mother uh, to me. That's the role uh, that I think she played for Emergent, is that I was not the first person she picked up and mothered. Uh, She had an amazing capacity uh, to be mother and grandmother to anyone who wandered by and who looked a little sad. (laughs) And so I was certainly that. And she had a lot of mothering to do with me. That began a really interesting uh, professional and personal relationship for the pair of us. So th- this very grandmotherly capacity that she had to sort of collect younger adults made us feel like our opinions and points of view were incredibly valuable. And she would push young, younger thinkers to the fore and uh, show up at events that we were sponsoring or literally take someone who was a younger scholar, younger speaker with her to events and put us in front of new audiences. I remember this one conversation we had, and I said, oh, Phyllis, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to be able to do this, you know? Here I am, a baby boomer, and I've got this little teeny kid, and she looked at me, and she said, you're a baby boomer? in this deep Southern Phyllis Tickle sort of accent, and I said, yes, I was born in 1959. I said, what did you think? She said, oh, she says, I don't like baby boomers. I don't even like my own baby boomer children. She said, I thought, sure, you were Gen X. And I just remember laughing so hard at that. And I said, Well, Phyllis, you know, some of us are just born a little bit out of time. And she said, Well, you keep that up, honey. No matter what she said to me, there was always, there was almost always this element of surprise to it. When my books began to be published, people started asking us to do things together. And the capacity that she had to just put her arms around a younger writer and bring me along for the fun, she just encouraged people. All of that combined, her as a writing mentor, her as a friend, her as a kind of a substitute mom figure at a really important point in my own life, her ability to help me professionally navigate the publishing world was so beautiful and it changed it changed the course of, of my life. And I'm really grateful to her for that. And I, and the, the most wonderful thing is I'm sitting here and I can tell you that there's probably at least 12 other writers who you love who could say the same thing because she had this enormous capacity to have a lot of children. There was this other mode that she had, and maybe it was just more on a more demonstrated on the, the personal level, but she also had a whisper that was really profound. I remember this one event we were doing at St. Philip's Cathedral together in Atlanta and we were sitting at this on this big stage, and it was during the time everyone thought the Episcopal Church was about to split in half over Gene Robinson. And uh, there were probably about seven or 800 people in the audience, it was really big. And someone from the audience raised their hand, asked some question about the death of the church and this, that, and the other thing. And um, I answered the question in this case. I, I said, you know, I don't think I've ever heard so many people uh, one Q&A session, who claim they believe in the resurrection, be so worried about the death of their church. And next to me, Phyllis, just on her breath, she went, she went, damn, I wish I would have said that. <laughs> she just whispered it real low with that southern damn, you know, <laughs> damn girl. And she would, she, would, she would say that she had just this sort of perfect southern whisper of swearing that she would only kind of let out very specific times, but it was always really effective. And so she literally took my remark and underscored it and did it in such a way that it was like, oh, I got caught off mic, you know, but it was was totally purposeful and And encouraging and just wanted to get her word in, you know, it's like, yeah, right. We supposedly live in the resurrection with you people, you know, complaining about. And so that style that she brought into things too, that that perfect sort of Tennessee accent with the swear words just to the right places. (laughs) Phyllis is best met through video and her ideas, I think, are best listened to she was an incredibly good writer, and she wrote some really interesting, good books. Um, I think my favorite is The Great Emergence. I remember saying that at the time when she sent me the manuscript. I said, Phyllis, this is going to be the best-selling book of your life. And, she, and it was. And so there was something about that book that just sort of reaches beyond its pages and grabs the imagination. I think that Great Emergence captures something about her. It's really important. I personally can't even count the number of times that she would say to me, "Um, Diana, it's going to be like this. And I would say, but wait a second, Phyllis, that's not, I don't really like what you're telling me. That doesn't sound like a very good prediction. And she said, well, I can't really help it, but I think that this is what's really going to happen. And then she'd sit back and she'd laugh and she'd say, well, you know what? I don't have to worry about that because I'm going to be dead. This is your problem. (laughs) Just go, thanks, Phyllis. (laughs) And she would just, she thought that was the funniest thing that she was going to leave us sometime in the not too terribly distant future and that it was going to be our problem. (laughs) And she she would just laugh and she'd say, let's go out and have some whiskey.
3: You know, I think Diana makes an interesting point here because, of course, Diana is, you know, a trained historian. And so Phyllis sometimes got in a little hot soup for, let's say, over-interpreting events. I mean, even even her 500-year cycle thing, a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes and say, no, that's not how history works. It doesn't go and clean 500-year cycles but Phyllis was a person of superlatives. If you, uh, if you listen to her talks, she's, she's constantly saying, yes, absolutely. 100% correct. That's exactly how it's going to be, you know? And, and, but she always did do it. I think as Diana's is saying, like with a bit of a twinkle in her eye and just like, that's the way she talked. And the other thing was the facts that she had at her command the historical, like the names and dates of things that happened 1,500 years ago, her mastery of that really a lot of times won over her skeptics.
0: You know, I think that Phyllis was able to do two things that were beautiful. And one was help people find their place in history. People find meaning and purpose when they understand how their lives are sort of caught up in the web of longer patterns of human experience. But what Phyllis was able to do was to take the history of Christianity and make it sing in such a way that it invited people to understand their own lives better. And in doing that, she also then opened a, a table Where it wasn't just a story about how everybody was going to wind up being a Baptist in the end, or everybody was going to all convert to becoming an Episcopalian. But that what was true is that all of these traditions, all of these narratives, all of these clusters of narrative meaning of of being Christian... They all had a place at the table and that the great call of the future was not letting the table be owned by anyone, but having a table that was really set for everyone. That was, I think, her genius was you found yourself in history and then you found yourself at a bigger table than you ever imagined existed. And both of those things are compelling and beautiful.
7: I think Diana really captures the enthusiastic energy that Phyllis generated in so many people. Uh, when we think of the story of the emerging church movement this far, the, the part of the church that was activated was rather narrow, It was really white evangelicalism, it was predominantly men. And all of a sudden there starts to be a shift where the leaders and voices, and even the tradition showing up that felt a part of something uh, grew. It got more diverse. It started connecting more ecumenically. And that sense of a history that is an open table is a real gift that she gave to so many people. Uh, And I know it's something, Tony, uh, you and her experience regularly on stage together.
3: Yeah, I mean, we would argue and she'd make it very clear. This this kid over here is talking about Emergent, which is kind of this one particular stream. I'm talking about Emergence, E-N-C-E, which is this massive cultural shift (laughs) you know she always kind of put me in my place
2: over here on god's side of this chart uh, (laughs) oh jones shut up i can hear you thinking it i'm actively engaged in trying to save his soul before he takes a whole bunch of people in the wrong direction but anyway (laughs) too late too late late. (laughs) i love him enough so god's gonna let him in anyway
3: But I'll tell you what, Trip, you know what else she did that I think was so important is she always said the old forms of Christianity aren't going away. They will continue to exist in the margins, in the minority. So like no one's going to come and tear down your cathedral and throw your organ in the dumpster. This, you know, this version of Christianity will continue. It will just become a relic of the past. So don't totally freak out, just freak out a little bit.
7: Here's a story from Diana of hanging out with a bunch of Episcopal bishops with Phyllis.
0: In 2010, Phyllis and I were asked to address the Episcopal House of Bishops. That is a very rare invitation. The Episcopal House of Bishops does not just invite anybody to come into their hallowed halls and share whatever happens to be the hobby horse that that author has as their latest thing. This was very purposeful. It was very hard. And there were several bishops in the Episcopal Church who worked and used a lot of their own personal capital to make sure that Phyllis and I got this invitation. We were joined by Stephanie Spellers, who is now the canon to michael curry who is the presiding bishop of the episcopal church and stephanie is amazing human being priest from boston african-american woman she had founded a basically an episcopal emergent congregation that was sort of like a dinner church before that became a common theme or a common idea and so stephanie helped Frame this weekend that we have with the bishops out by providing worship and also sort of translating some of the stuff that we were doing into technical bishopese. But Phyllis and I spent four days doing all of this for the House of Bishops, Phyllis's great emergence, my Christianity for the rest of us. Talking about spiritual practices, going over and over and over, statistics about decline and renewal, talking about the issues of what had really caused the problems in the churches, sharing theological things. I mean, it was just, it was an extraordinary meeting. And what I know now, it was also very controversial. I did not know at the time that there was a considerable number of bishops who were sitting in that meeting ridiculing me and Phyllis the entire time we were there, but there were way more who were there who were just like, this is really interesting, or I'm completely on board with this, and this is the direction the church has to go in the future, That meant, of course, that one of the most important mainline denominations had basically invited this conversation into its very heart, into the place where it would make a huge amount of institutional difference. We were being driven back to the airport, and I said to Phyllis, wow, that was like the most encouraging thing that I've ever done. I said like blah, 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 you know, talking the whole way back. And finally, she just sort of, she was really quiet. I said, what's the matter, Phyllis? And she said, they don't realize that they've only got 10 to 15 years left. And I said, what? And she said, that's it. She said, the main line will not make it any more than 10 to 15 years without substantial change. And she said, I don't think they realize how short the time is. It was like, wait a second, we just had this great event, and you're saying that that they didn't get it, and that they're on their way out. And I said, oh, Phil, something will happen, you know, sounding a little like a climate change denier. <laughs> <laughs> don't get it. Something something will be fixed, you know. Well, every time I look at the statistics now on the denominations, I look at that and I go, Oh damn! Just one more thing that Phyllis was right about because the numbers are just about where she thought that they would be. You know, ten, fifteen years after the fact, and it's hard to see how very right she how very right she was on that.
7: Phyllis was the per- first person who talked to me about the people she loves having specific days where she prays for them every week. And I remember being told, like, oh, you're you're on my Tuesday list. And it meant so much, especially from someone you know that doesn't skip their prayer time, that since then, like all the students I've been, you know, done confirmation for, the couples I married, friends like Tony, he's a Wednesday, and, and stuff like that. Like having it, we're part of your weekly rhythm is not just the gratitude that comes from dwelling on the people that bless your life, but recognizing uh, that these bearers of the divine image are people that bring the presence of God in your life as well, and that you get to do the same to them. Uh, and that little exchange early on with her helped me reframe right the role of those kind of habitual patterns of prayer that, a Southern Baptist preacher's kid did not have uh, in his quiet time. She could pray like there was no tomorrow.
0: And that's, I think, the the grounding practice of Phyllis. That's what really gave her the capacity to do all that stuff, is incredible, deep connectedness to the Holy Spirit.
3: her book of daily readings, goes to a quiet place and prays.
2: Uh, I do this because we're told in Christianity that there must be constant prayer in our lives and also that there should be a constant cascade of prayer offered before the throne of God. It's not petitionary. Unlike much prayer, it doesn't ask for anything. It simply glorifies God and acknowledges Him. Discipline is a growing of muscle. And, and this is discipline, and it's the growing of the spiritual muscle. can't imagine what life would be if I had to go more than three hours without approaching the throne of God. Are you st- distressed by all these things you are? Are you heartbroken about all these things you have just done? It's all right. When I'm standing in that one place that is the divine office, I know God's in his heaven and that I'm part of that heaven.
5: Phyllis and I had a gig in Georgia and it was going to be her last public appearance she decided she was retiring from it and the last one was going to be this thing that we were doing together and she calls me the night before and she goes kiddo I cannot I have this cough and I have I, I never cancel gigs but I cannot kick it and I just feel really unwell and I don't you know I'm so sorry but I can't do it and I ended up getting Andy Root actually to do it with me but um, it wasn't a cold <laughs> It was cancer. That was it, you know? Yeah, she was just, she was, um, she was just incredible.
3: The last time I spoke to Phyllis, I knew she had cancer. From what I recall, she had one cancer treatment, but then hated the way it made her feel and so said, forget it. Um, That was very Phyllis. (laughs) She just was ready to face death. She had no fear. She wasn't trying to cling to life. Um, But we set up a time to talk on the phone. And when we connected on the phone, within just a few seconds, she started coughing. And she was trying to talk and she kept coughing and coughing and coughing. And finally, I hung up because it was terrible to listen to this coughing. And I knew she loved me so much. She was she was gonna try to get through the coughing so she could talk to me. And instead I hung up and I texted her, I love you. And she texted me back, I love you too. I'm sorry, I can't, you know, couldn't talk. And she died shortly thereafter. I flew to Memphis with Doug Paget, and I had an experience at her funeral at St. Mary's Cathedral in Memphis that I've, I've never had before or since for, for all of my doubts and skepticism about everything and how speculative theology is. I had a sense that there had to be more to life than the years we live on this earth because Phyllis's life force was too much to be contained in 81 years on this planet. There had to be more of Phyllis. Now her legacy, we've talked about it for the last hour. It's huge in my life, in many, many people's lives. I mean, she wrote three dozen books. She had seven kids. I mean, her legacy on this planet is secure but also I just had this sense that there's even more cosmically that, that that's how big her life was um, so I have I miss her I have incredible memories of her she she resides within me and I've dreamt about her since her death uh, so yeah I, I just think that she's one of those lives that uh, touched many many other lives
7: For those of you that know Phyllis, we hope you remember her and feel that spirit, that unique energy that she brought, uh, hearing these stories. For those that didn't, hopefully we did a good enough job of giving you a taste that you understand why she was so dear to so many. But we want to end uh, with handing her the microphone again from a clip from the first time she was on Homebrewed Christianity in 2008. And she has some wisdom that might be more important now, a wisdom about what to do when you find yourself in a time of history that's changing and the tumult that's going on, an invitation that perhaps this time in a great emergence, maybe maybe we'll do it without so much violence and perhaps they'll know we're Christians by how we love and not by our tribe.
4: There's been huge bloodletting, been major wars as a result. Most of them religiously motivated or religiously justified. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do it this time. What we do have to do is be aware of what's happening to us. Be aware of how upsetting it is to everybody as you go through it, reshuffling everything, as you seek for a new source of authority. Uh, and move with some informed compassion and mercy and enlightened self-interest, if nothing else, in how you conduct not only yourself, but your own culture. Uh, and uh, you're part of your faith.
2: Thee, O Lord, before the peoples, and I will sing praise to thee before the nations. For thy mercy is great even to the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted above the heavens, O God, and thy glory over
4: all the earth.
6: is a homebrewed christianity production trip fuller and tony jones are your hosts production mixing and sound design by josh gilbert media and marketing by david trotter the music you're hearing is from the cobalt season thanks to ryan sharp thanks to all the emerged members who make the show possible and thanks to you for listening Our next episode for members only is on the Emerged private feed and it's Phyllis' talk on the great emergence from 2008 at the National Pastors' Convention. This is audio that's only available on the private feed and you can join for as little as $10 at EmergedPodcast.com. See you next time.
7: Listening to Emerged, a crowd-funded podcast, you can help make this possible. Get ad-free episodes and two bonus episodes on our off weeks by going to EmergePodcast.com. And guess what? You could be a producer, like our friends at the Open Table Network and Karen Sloan. Don't make them lonely.